Welcome to Crop Watch Podcast, a production of Nebraska Extension. Well, welcome to another edition of Fridays with the Scientist. Today we have Dr. Martha Durr, state climatologist for the state of Nebraska. Martha, how are you today? Not too bad, Eric. How are you? Thanks for having me. Good. Yeah, it's been a relatively nice summer other than a few days here and there. Um, not too much heat. Finally getting some rain. Drought's getting a little better. Yes, that is very good to see. Yeah. So there are a lot of things about you that are probably unique, but uh, you are one of the few people I have ever met that have not only been to Alaska, and I know a lot of people have been to Alaska, you're one of the few people I've ever met that have actually lived in Alaska, not not in Southeast Alaska. You actually lived in Fairbanks, am I right? I did, yeah, which is about the middle of the state. Yeah, I lived there for seven years. Well, what were you doing up there? So I worked, uh, I was a service and applied climatologist at the Alaska Climate Research Center. That's part of the Geophysical Institute at the University of Alaska in Fairbanks. I was there from 2002 to 2009. Excellent. So I have two questions for you that you probably have gotten several times you might be tired of answering. But one is, how did you handle the lack of daylight in the winter and the lack of darkness, relatively speaking, in the summers? <laughs> yeah, good question. Um, the thing that I tell people that may be a surprise to them is the lack of darkness in the summer was almost more difficult in a way than the lack of daylight in the winter. But I just kind of went on with about my daily activities as normal and went outside when I could. Uh, that was very helpful. But in the summer, it's difficult when you don't see darkness from about May through August, uh, it just, it doesn't get dark there. It gets twilight, but uh, but not dark. So that's difficult to kind of wind down in the evening and tell yourself it's time to go to bed. So it's probably about now when you've actually started having something that would represent real nighttime conditions. That's right, yeah. So the, the normal day length time, that was really a short period of time in the fall and in the spring. So you'd either be gaining lots of daylight uh, quickly or losing it quickly. So the, the normal day lengths didn't happen very often. It was either light or it was dark. Yeah. Excellent. And what was, do you remember the coldest temperature or wind chill you experienced when you were up there? Yeah, so uh, the coldest temperature was probably about minus 55, so 55 degrees below zero. And it was the first winter I was there, so 2002 um, or early 2003, I can't exactly remember. Um, but I had a thermometer outside of my house and I kept taking pictures of the thermometer as the temperature would get lower, <laughs> just wanting to capture that, that moment in my first kind of minus 50 or below reading. So yeah. 55 below. Yeah. That 30 below we had here in February, 2021 was pretty cold, but that's, I'm sure 55 below is quite a bit worse. Or is, once it gets a certain point, you just don't even care. <laughs> it is. Yeah. For me, um, being outside minus 25 was kind of my comfort threshold. So if it was a, but if it was warmer than minus 25, I could kind of handle it for a length of time. But if it was colder than that, then your extremities started to feel really cold and start to hurt and mechanical things start to, or they can break down. Um, your tie, if you leave your car parked outside, uh, for a length of time, then your tires kind of go flat on one side. So you start to go and then it seems like you have flat tires just because they've, they've flattened out on one side. So there's oh, all kinds of interesting things that happen when it gets really, really cold outside. Yeah. 
Well, that probably explains why there's relatively limited population lives in that part of the world. Yes. <laughs> yeah. Very, no, very party to be able to handle that. It's not for everybody. Yeah. Yeah. Sure. Well, kind of like Nebraska, right? Yes. <laughs> that should be Alaska's motto as well. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> probably gonna be a lot of states. So uh, speaking of states, do do all states have a state climate office and a state climatologist, or are we relatively unique in the Midwest having, or in this part of the country, having state climate office as a state climatologist? Yeah, most all states do in the country now have a state climatologist. Um, so the program or this idea of a state climatologist, it was actually a federal position and that uh, funding for that program was dropped in the 1970s. So it was really left up to each state how they wanted to move forward with that position of state climatologist. So Nebraska decided that it should be located at a university. So it's been at a university since the late 70s, early 80s. Oh, okay. That's that's interesting. So by federal, was it a USDA program? Was it um, Bureau of Weather or whatever it was called back then? Yeah, it was NOAA, and I believe it was under the National Weather Service, if I'm remembering correctly, but it was a, it was a NOAA federal position, so National Oceanic and Atmospheric Administration. Okay. Yeah. That would have started, I think NOAA started in 1970, so it would have started about that time then? About that time, yeah. Interesting. Um, so what would you say are some of the core functions of the state climate office? Yeah, I tell people that we are like a climate help desk and we deal with all scales of climate. So it's what happened in the past, what's happening right now, uh, what are the current and emerging issues and making sure that we're tracking those and informing the public and state agencies and those who make decisions based on climate information, keeping them up to date, um, and then dealing with our climate future and helping people understand what the implications of climate change are. So it's those two areas that I find myself spending a lot of time on because that's where people are the most concerned with is what's going on right now, what's happening over the course of the next season or next year, and then what's happening for us 20 years from now or 50 years from now, what does Nebraska's climate, what will that look like? So those are kind of the scales at which, which we deal with, but we're, we're like an, a, um, the old information lines that people would call and ask their general questions. And that's kind of what we are like uh, in the climate world. I, I like that. I just hope it doesn't become too much like that because that means that we've been replaced by robots. <laughs> <laughs> Hopefully not. <laughs> so, what do you feel are your main responsibilities as a state climatologist to residents of the state of Nebraska? Yeah, I, I feel that I um, serve as a trusted science-based voice and uh, communication and translator for all things related to climate. Um, so it's a place where people can go if they are in need of climate information um, for whatever application that they have, which is really widely uh, varying. Um, so, so that's kind of the purpose that we serve is, is uh, that aspect. Yeah, that translator portion sort of, that really ties in with the climate help desk uh, scenario you kind of mentioned. Um, so we've had no shortage of extreme events globally, nationwide, and even statewide the last five years. You just think about the uh, bomb cyclone in March of 2019, and now we're finally, hopefully, inching out of a very bad drought. Um, 
So it seems to me that some people just automatically assume that any extreme weather event is automatically attributed to climate change and nothing else. And then unfortunately, there are still a few people out there that are completely dismissive of any link from extreme weather to climate change. As an educator and as a state climatologist, you probably undoubtedly have a lot of experience in working not only with the public, but in trying to communicate with people. Do you have any recommendations on how to best communicate with the public and the media with regards to extreme events and the possible links to climate change? Yeah, great question. Um, well, I guess, first of all, climate change is real and it's here now and it's it's really impacting everything, but the, um, the degree to which it impacts specific weather events is going to vary depending on um, what are the natural variants and natural forces that are impacting the climate. So I try and illustrate that there are, are two things at play here. There is natural climate variability, um, but there's also the human-caused climate change that is an amplifier and it's ramping uh, events um, up in terms of frequency and intensity. Um, so, so those are the two things that I try and, and get clear for people. Um, and I also say that um, climate change, um, we can think of it as how much worse was this drought or the heat that the Southern US and much of the world has experienced, how much worse was it made by climate change? Because these things have happened in the past, they will happen in the future, but how much was it amplified because of climate change? So it's not the sole driver, um, but it, it does change the frequency and intensity and in general makes things worse overall. Um, so, so that's kind of how I, I try and help people and walk them through this, these nuances. Um, I also talk about the fact that weather events are one way that we feel climate change. Um, so our, um, you know, the weather events that we experienced in the past, those are going to be different going forward because of climate change. But, but that is a, a mechanism that we can reach people um, and connecting the dots from specific weather events and linking that to climate change. Sure. Do you, do you feel like you spend a lot of time working with different groups and organizations and helping them prepare for not just extreme events, but for types of weather that we just don't normally, we haven't normally experienced as part of the country. Yeah, I find that is increasingly being the case. I'm being asked a lot by a lot of different um, agencies, or um, it could be a faith-based group, or it could be a school, or it could be a city, a you know, municipality thinking about water availability and water management. So there's a, a number of different um, agencies and sectors that are asking questions and thinking about climate change and what does it mean um, for how they're making decisions and how should they be planning. And so I really try and stress that what we've experienced, um, you know, Nebraska's climate future is going to be different than Nebraska's climate past. So we can't necessarily rely on what we've done in the past to be successful in, in a changed uh, Nebraska climate going forward. Sure. And I believe you and Dr. Natalie Umflett developed something called a sister cities tool uh, several years ago. And I, I found that to be very useful for, you know, maybe showing where 
temperatures might be in 30, 40, 50 years based on different emission scenarios. And uh, so I think, for example, I, I could be mistaken, but for example, like Omaha, I think like their sister city for you know, winter in 40 years was like Kansas City or something. And then in 100 years, it was like Joplin, Missouri. And, you know, we and I, I think those are helpful tools because it gives people some current context as to what the weather is like in those places now. And, you know, on, on one hand, it's like, oh, well, you know, five degrees warmer in the winter. That's great. But then again, there's all sorts of unintended consequences that come with that with shorter, you know, frost free, you know, shorter frost lengths on the, in the ground and those sorts of things. That means more diseases or insects potentially. Um, so I just brought that up. So I just kind of wanted to commend you for helping develop uh, such a cool tool that I think actually could be uh, very useful as an ed for education, not just in college, but also potentially K through 12 or certainly high school level. Yes. Yeah. Thank you. I, that came out of a project work that was NOAA funded and working with different cities across Nebraska, Iowa, Kansas, and Missouri. And it's one thing if I tell somebody that Lincoln's average temperature is going to warm by five degrees, then if I tell them the average annual temperature in Lincoln is going to be more like Wichita in the future, or the summer temperatures could be more like Southern Texas if we don't reduce our greenhouse gas emissions. So putting a place in addition to a numerical value in terms of an amount of change, it really helps people um, localize it and think about it in a different way and, and hopefully do something about it, plan differently or take that into account. Sure. So we're coming wrapping up here. I do just have kind of um, one more question. It might be a little bit loaded, uh, but as an educator and as a mother, with regard to climate change, what gives you the most concern and what gives you the most hope? Yeah, that's a good question. It's always good to end on hope. So I'm glad that you asked this toward the end. Um, I, what gives me the most concern is I, I feel, um, the anxiety from young people today. I teach, um, a class called climate and crisis, and there is definite tangible and real concern among, among young people today that they're feeling, what is their future going to look like? Should they have kids or should they not because of climate change? So, they're, what they're facing is very different than, than what I faced in the late 70s. So um, so that that is a big concern of mine is just the mental health of young people growing up. And my kids are nine and 11 now. And what is their future going to look like? And what am I leaving them? Um, but in terms of, of the hopeful side of things, I see lots of, of passion uh, by these young people. I mean, they're willing to really take a stand and hold decision makers accountable and they're not afraid to um, get in there and, and let their voice be heard. And so I appreciate the opportunity to help elevate those voices and bring the youth um, to help bring them to the table and be in on these discussions because they've got a lot to say and they're very passionate about it. And whenever I get down personally, I look at what these young people are doing and achieving at this early age. And I'm, I'm, it's hard not to be hopeful when I see that. That's good. That's very good. So uh, again, I thank you for coming on today and I hope you have a good rest of your day. Thank you, Martha. Thanks, Eric. Yep. Bye-bye. Bye. -bye. Bye.